Well, it's obvious at this point that today is Palm Sunday, and we've read scripture passages pointing us to Palm Sunday and sang songs. Last year, on Palm Sunday, I preached a message from Micah chapter 6. We were going through the book of Micah and other Old Testament prophets last spring, and on Palm Sunday, we came to chapter 6, and we were examining in the chapter the nature of true worship. Another way of saying that is the kind of worship that God is pleased with. That's what true worship is. The kind of worship that God is is seeking, as we just read from Psalm 24. And I titled the message last year, How Will the Quarantine Change Us? Do you remember where we were a year ago? In the kind of the, the end of March a year ago? We were, we were just in the thick of this quarantine exile, right? We were all at home. It had been about a month since everything seemed to have shut down. And a month into it, most of us were thoroughly discouraged at that point. And I wonder if any of us had any idea that a year later, we'd still be unable to fully regather as a church. We'd still be in the situation where so many things are not yet back to what they were. A year later. So I thought it would be a good exercise this morning, Palm Sunday of 2021, and, and, and recognizing that as we're at this point, we are, by God's grace, and I hope, <laughs> beginning to see a light at the end of the COVID tunnel. I thought it would be a good idea at this point to revisit that same passage, Micah 6, and restate the question. Last year, the question was, how will the quarantine change us? We were sort of anticipating a future event here. And this end of it, I want to restate the question like this. How has the COVID experience changed us? How has it changed us? Has it changed us? With all the altering in our lives, and I'm specifically thinking of the church, has this experience changed the church in the past year? So that's the question I want to examine together. We'll basically go through the passage like I did last year. I'm going to re-preach what's in the text, and we'll talk a little bit about what we said at the time last year, and again, some of the unknowns that we were trying to grapple with, and then see if there's any way we can look back now and ask those questions again and see if, if we're in a different spot in our hearts. So would you pray with me and let's ask the Lord to, to speak to us through his word today. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, that your word speaks to your people directly. You are a speaking God. You are a relational God. You want to know us. And you want us to know you. In fact, Lord, we were made to know you. That's our highest purpose, to know you and to glorify you as God, as the king, as the creator, and the one who's worthy of all glory. So this morning as we open up Micah, and we know that you've been speaking to your people since day one, we go back thousands of years now and hear what you had to say to them, knowing that what you said to them is relevant to us. You are speaking to us today. 
So may your spirit enlighten us to understand what you have to say. We pray those things in the name of Jesus, through whom our relationship with you is secure. Amen. So yes, today marks the beginning of another Holy Week. And every year we gather together at the beginning of Holy Week to remember the arrival of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem. Right? He comes in as the, the King of Kings, and he comes in on Palm Sunday. And like those who were there that day, who were gathered along the sides of the roads, and they were laying down their cloaks and laying down their palm fronds, we recognize that the entry of Jesus into the city on that day on the back of a donkey colt was symbolic. It was symbolic, and it was symbolic of his rightful coronation. He actually does this following the pattern of King Solomon. That's how Solomon entered into the throne, on the back of a, of a colt. And he does this also in fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah 9, which says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So those who knew that, that day, they, were, they knew that, that what was happening in front of them was a fulfillment of these prophetic lookings forward to the day that the Savior would arrive. And they, they received him as such. They worshiped him as such. But we know something now that they did not know on that day. We now know that Jesus would inaugurate his kingdom not by coming into the city and mounting the political thrones or kicking out the Romans or doing whatever it was that they expected the Messiah to do, we now know that Jesus would inaugurate his kingdom on a cross, not a throne. And so the bookends of Holy Week, this day he enters the city and this day he goes to the cross, are marked by two responses of the arrival of the king. You've got Palm Sunday, which is marked by, by worship, by, by receiving him for who he is, for recognizing him as the Christ. And then you get Good Friday, which is marked by his rejection. To take the king and say, you aren't the king, you're not the king we want, and kill him. So this week, as we enter into it every year, it, it provides us with contrasting pictures of worship. A picture of true worship and a picture of deceived worship. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's still intended to be a form of worship, but it's a kind of worship that is far from pleasing to God. You've got palm wavers who are adoring Christ. And then you've got this other group of people who are actually represented by the religious leaders of the day and the majority of the so-called people of God living in Jerusalem who had all of the outward appearances of godliness but Jesus says inwardly, you're like whitewashed tombs. You've got this group of people whose act of worship is an affront to the Lord. They thought they were doing the will of God by crucifying Jesus, all the while they were rejecting God's Son. So Palm Sunday offers us a chance to evaluate our own hearts, doesn't it? This week gives us a chance to kind of see these, these responses and, and, and ask ourselves very solemnly, 
as we gather, are we offering a sacrifice of praise that's pleasing to God or not? And as I mentioned last year on Palm Sunday, and it's still true this year, the coronavirus has drastically shifted the way we do Palm Sunday and drastically shifted the way we observe Holy Week. We have been in this sort of exile as well, these quarantines, these shutdowns, these changes in life. It's not like a normal Holy Week these two years. We're in a different place, and we feel that difference. There's a sense of exile, temporary as it, though may, it may be. And this exile, as we were beginning to enter into it last spring, made our time of studying the Old Testament prophecy of Micah really relevant. And as I said at the time, and I, I would say even more so now, very poignant. The people of Jerusalem in the 7th century BC to whom Micah was speaking and writing, they were facing exile too. A far more severe exile than what we've experienced this year. They were about to enter into an exile that was going to last for generations. And the reason they were entering into that exile was because God was judging them. God was correcting them. They had forgotten the nature of true worship. Even though they went to temple, even though they offered sacrifices and they praised God regularly in their gatherings, they had forgotten the core of what God really wanted from them in worship. And this exile would be God's way of correcting them and God's way of changing them. And God did bring about change and revival in them through that. It was a long and painful process, but God worked in their hearts and brought them to a place of worship. So as we look at Micah chapter 6, Let's ask the Lord to do something similar in his church today. Micah chapter 6. Micah has returned to a theme that he's used over and over again throughout the book. He started it back in chapter 1 where he, he sort of, he paints this picture of a courtroom scene. And so we're back in the courtroom here in chapter 6 and God is calling in witnesses in this courtroom drama to hear the charges against his people. Look at verse 1. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. We don't see the details of the indictment laid out here. That occurred back in earlier chapters of Micah. But if you were here last spring, you might remember what it was. And I've already said it again this morning. It's the people had abandoned true worship of God. And they did that by placing their trust in idols. Idolatry had a, a deep grip in, in, in Israel at that time. And as a result, this is important, as a result of that idolatry, their love for one another had dissipated. They were oppressing one another, especially the poor and the vulnerable in their midst. This is the indictment that God has against his people. And we just got done studying 
1 Corinthians. And so this is not, it's like the same old story over and over again, much like the Corinthian church that we just got done looking at. The Israelites at this time were, were, were abandoning that love for one another because they were just looking out primarily for themselves. They become a selfish people. And that created a massive imbalance in Israel, particularly on a socioeconomic level, such that the poor were not just being oppressed, but they were, they were so oppressed that they were, they were actually pinned into poverty. There was like no way out for them. The systems that were erected just kept them in that place of oppression. And God says, this problem that's predominantly occurring within the upper echelons of Jerusalem society who are responsible for that mess. He says this problem is directly linked to your improper worship. I want us to note, and again, this is important, it doesn't mean that the people weren't religious. It doesn't mean that they weren't going to church regularly, because they were. It wasn't called church back then. But they were going to temple, they were going regularly, they were still Jews. And they went dutifully to the temple on the Sabbath, they were still making their offerings regularly, they were still singing their songs. On the surface, they had this appearance of being faithful worshipers. But God has something to say about their worship. And again, it's not good. But before he says it, he first points them back to what should be the impetus of their worship. Look at verse 3. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent you before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened to Shittim, to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. He's pointing them back to salvation history, and he's saying, have you forgotten what I have done for you? Have you forgotten my grace in your life over and over again. In other words, he's saying this worship problem is rooted in this. True worship is always a response to God's grace. And specifically, that grace in salvation. God saves us from sin and recreates us then as worshipers. It's not the other way around. You don't figure out how to worship God rightly, and then he says, okay, you've done enough, I'll save you. He saves us by grace, undeserving people, and recreates us into worshipers. And that's important because it informs the way we should worship. Think about this. If God graciously lifts us up out of our slavery and oppression to sin, how can we worship him properly if simultaneously we're oppressing others? If, if God has given us grace, how can we be worshiping him if we're unwilling to give grace to other people? And that was what was happening in Israel. And that's frankly what happens all the time with the people of God when we go off the rails as we do regularly over and over again and things get 
messy. And it's not that we have to be actively oppressing people. Even we can be passively just observing it and doing nothing about it. And that makes us unjust. So listen to what Micah says about the emptiness of their worship. Verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I get my firstborn for my transgression, for my sin? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Notice that there's a, a, a hyperbole here that Micah is bringing out here to make a strong point. And it sounds like a lot like what God had said through the prophet Amos in Amos chapter 5. Listen to what God says about the worship of the people there. He says, I hate. I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I won't accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I won't look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. Does this mean that God hates church services? No, in fact, these are the elements and the methods of corporate worship that God has actually set up for us. It doesn't mean he hates church. It means that he, he, he looks at these, these rituals if they're just outward, if they're just empty, and he says, that's, that's repulsive to me. It doesn't please me at all. If there's no love for God and no love for for neighbor, no love for your brothers and sisters, then this isn't worship. It's just noise. And neighbor love is a key evidence of a true love for God. God makes that abundantly clear in both the Amos passage and here in Micah. By following these denouncements of Israel's empty worship with a call to what he does require of them. This is what I want from you. Amos chapter 5, 24 says this, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Verse 8 here of Micah chapter 6, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. What does it mean to do justice and to love kindness? Justice is not just the punishment of what's wrong. That is part of what justice is. But it's also the promotion of what is right. It's to see a wrong and to, and to actively say, I want to make that right. Not just punish it, but change it. That's the nature of justice. It's both. And kindness, this word kindness in the Hebrew, it's this, this beautiful word, chesed. And it's, it's used over and over again throughout the Old Testament 
as a stubborn, limitless love. It's the kind of love that we see here in verses 3 to 5 again, where God says, what, what have I done to you, right? Have you forgotten what I've done? I, I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I redeemed you. I sent you these ministers and prophets and helpers. I've given to you my all. I have loved you as I've saved you and redeemed you. And God says this again, this is what I require of you. And so exile, as God's judgment upon them, will serve to correct them, to correct their failure to worship properly. And the way that he does that through their exile is by humbling them. Your lack of love for God and lack of love for others is because you've, you've just thought too highly of yourself. Andy read from Philippians earlier as he was praying, and it's that same idea, right? Humble yourselves. Think of others more important than yourselves. Don't think of yourself more than you ought to, right? And so in exile, as the, the, the Babylonian empire would come in and conquer the city and haul them off for 70 years into captivity... The proud will be brought low. Those who were the haves in Jerusalem will become the have-nots in Babylon. The oppressors in Jerusalem will become those who are now oppressed in Babylon. And God is, again, he's judging them, but there's a grace in this. He is stripping them bare and exposing the worthlessness of the idols that they'd so trusted in. Can your idols deliver you? What have your idols brought you to? Conquer. And then God will lovingly lead his people back to himself in right worship again. And after the 70-year exile, that's what we see. We go to the book of Nehemiah, specifically in Nehemiah chapter 8, and you see the fulfillment of that. They come back to Jerusalem. They open up the word of God. And their hearts are pierced and they weep and they worship. It took an exile to bring about a revival in God's people. So a year ago, we asked how this current COVID-19 exile might affect us. We asked if this period of quarantine and whatever other hardships it brought out, might, might there be a way that God would be working in this to expose emptiness in our own worship? How might this present exile serve to correct us? How might it serve to change the church? And last year, I admitted freely that I did not presume to know all that God was doing through that exile. And I want to state again, that is still true. We're still in it, right? I don't know exactly what God is doing in all this. But I did offer up a year ago that it would be wise for us to use this time well to consider our own hearts. And to ask the Lord earnestly for spiritual discernment through it all. God, is there something in all of this for the church, this is, this is a, a, a pandemic that's affected the world, but it is 
definitely affected the church. And I said at the time, I'm not a prophet. I'm just a pastor. I don't presume to know all that God's doing, but here's here's what we can say we do confidently know, and it was these things. We know that God is sovereign. We know that God is in control of all things, that God is in control of the spread of the virus and the length of time that all this would last. And we, we look at things like Psalm 115. God sits on his throne. He does whatever he pleases. He's in control. We also said that we know that God always uses trials to refine and purify his church. Looking at passages like 1 Peter 1 or James chapter 1 that, that tell us explicitly that that's what God does through trials. We also said that love for God and proper worship in the New Testament, just like in the Old Testament, is a response to his saving initiative. It is God's grace that saves us and recreates us into worship. Worship is a response to grace. That's still true. And it's still evidenced by love for one another. 1 John 4, this is New Testament writing. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Again, God-glorifying worship is intrinsically tied to this kind of neighbor love. Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So Paul's making this very clear. This is what it looks like to worship God in a way that's acceptable to God. What does he say? Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection and outdo one another in showing honor. Jesus says in John 13, a new commandment I give to you. This is, by the way, on Holy Week, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So that's not changed. And I also know confidently that this kind of love was manifested in the worship of the early church. They they understood that. And it was clearly seen in their worship together. As we look at Acts chapter 2, and I would invite you to even turn there. It's here that I want us to consider what's similar and perhaps what's not similar to the worship of the modern church. Acts chapter 2, these are... Very well-known passages. Verse 42. This is a depiction of the gathering of the church in Jerusalem. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to breaking of bread and to prayers. 
And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. You look at that and you say, that we can relate to that. That's what gathered worship still looks like for us. We, we come together, we're devoted to the teaching of the word and to fellowship, to breaking bread together, whether that's, uh, again, a, an outflow of fellowship or whether it's a picture of, of taking communion together to praying to one another. These are the elements of our worship services even still today in the modern church, right? But then it says some things that they were doing that maybe feel a little less familiar to what we experience regularly in the modern church. Verse 44, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Does some of that feel a little foreign to the modern church? I mean... Sunday mornings, we'll come, we'll hear the sermons, that's important. We'll fellowship together, that's important. Um, Selling their belongings and distributing to all as they had need. Maybe. That's a radical thing. Day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, receiving their food with glad and generous hearts. There's a clear pattern here of a not a Sunday-only mentality. There's not a Monday through Saturday difference in the lives of the believers. And it says as they were praising God, they were having favor with all the people. That's a remarkable testimony of the church. If you go to Acts chapter 5, it says something similar there talking about the the people of Jerusalem around. They were watching and witnessing the activity and the worship of the church. And it says there, they dared not join them. So it's not to say that they had this this testimony before the people that made everybody think, oh, we just want to be like you. There was still definitely the offense of the gospel. They dared not join them, but it says they held them in high esteem. Is the modern church held in high esteem by a society around us who dares not join us? Makes us ask the question, what if our common corporate worship isn't really worship? This is the application that I asked last year. I said, what if one of the outcomes of this COVID quarantine is that our individualistic bent gets broken? That this, this, this mindset that you know, we hear about, we hear in the New Testament these, these constant uh, exhortations against self-centeredness, right? Towards loving one another and considering others more important than ourselves. And, and I wonder if, if some of those things just kind of bounce off of us because at our core, we're just so individualistic as a people, And so I asked out loud, I, I wondered out loud, would, would this maybe bring a, bring a break to that individualistic bent? Would we get so tired of just being alone all the time? 
that we'd finally learn to love and, 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 and long for a community of people whom we could serve and know and be known by? Would we be starved of community? And a, and a year ago, a month in, I said this. I said, look at the way this pandemic has brought us to a, a place of equality. Didn't matter what your socioeconomic status was, what your race was, any other, you know, descriptors or dividers of society. We were all in the same boat, stuck at home, fearful for what was coming, potentially losing our jobs. We were in the same boat. Although I will say that with caveat, we weren't all exactly in the same boat. Some of those divides were still very evident, but nonetheless... I said, look at how that's compelling us to actually meet other people's needs. And we were. And what if these things became permanent? The extra effort to, to reach out and, and, and call and check in on and, and give food or give aid to those who were suffering more than we were. What if these things became permanent? So here's a year later, I want to ask the question, have they? Have they become permanent? Have, have we changed? Isn't that what the gospel intends? Isn't that what Holy Week leads to? Israel's sin of idolatry and empty worship was similarly exposed by Micah's contemporary Isaiah. It's in Isaiah chapters 51 and 52 that we see him talk about these same problems with the people of God. And there again, God announces a judgment of exile. But where does it go? Where does it lead? It leads to the picture of his people's salvation in the suffering servant of the next chapter, Isaiah 53, which we will read and hear a lot, I think, this week. Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Isaiah reminds them there, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. But then this great pronouncement of God's grace, and the Lord has laid on him, the suffering servant, the iniquity, the sin of us all. Jesus loved us. Jesus served us. Jesus saved us. And said in John 13, I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Has the quarantine changed us? I'm 
I'm going to just uh, say again, I don't know yet fully what God is doing through all this, and it's probably too early to, to see exactly what the outcome of all this will be for the church. But when I ask the question to myself, has the quarantine changed us? I, I sadly think that for much of the church, I don't think it has. At least not yet. And I'll... I'll just elaborate on that by saying, look at the events of this last year, specifically within the church. Are we more united as a people of God, or are we more divided, or as divided as ever? And I'm not just talking about Edgewater. I'm actually not specifically speaking directly about Edgewater. I don't want to pronounce this judgment on this church particularly, because I think God is doing great things here. Nonetheless, we're fools if we don't listen and challenge our hearts. But I certainly am looking at the big C church. Are we more divided or united than we were a year ago? Are we, are we, are we still battling over issues of politics and race, economics, responses to a virus, personal freedoms, religious liberties? Have we rallied together around issues that are, that are coming at us in society and within the church? And, and, and are we saying no? You know, as important as it may be to discuss issues like that, our bond is Christ. Our love for one another is what we're called to. This is what's most important. We should not be arrogant and fighting and disputing over things like this. Our bond is Christ. Is that the, is that the, 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 the characteristic that marks the church? I haven't seen a lot of that. There's a society who looks at the happenings within evangelicalism and says, we dare not join them, but we have high esteem for them. Is that what we're hearing? So what do we do? If we take to heart the call of passages like Micah 6 and so many others, I think it brings us to four key ideas. The first one is humility. God, we are still not yet the people that you intend us to be. Forgive us. That's the second thing. Repent. What have you required of us, God? And are we faithfully demonstrating love and justice and kindness? Those are the next two things. Humility, repentance, justice, and love. That's the worship God is pleased with. So perhaps the greatest thing we can do this Holy Week is to, again, step back and consider the bookends of the week. Consider the two groups of people who, come, who came out to, to witness Jesus' inauguration of his kingdom. Those on Sunday who adored him and recognized what God was doing 
or those on Friday who saw that that inauguration was a challenge to the throne of their own hearts and rejected him, even as they were religious and thought they were doing the will of God. We ask ourselves, which represents the church today? And we need to focus wholeheartedly on what God's response was and always is as we look to the cross. If we ask ourselves honestly the question, which one reflects the modern church of today, we're going to be probably very discouraged by the answer to the question. But we look again to what God's response is at the cross. Justice and mercy meet. When we come in humility and repentance, Jesus' death on the cross is representative of us. He takes the justice of God's wrath for sin upon himself and thereby pours out mercy on those who in humility and repentance put their faith in him. God, make me, recreate me into a worshiper. And if we don't have that humility, then that justice, it speaks a word of judgment over us, doesn't it? I'm responsible for that. And that same justice will be executed on me. Focus wholeheartedly on God's response this week. And let's find ourselves humbly covered by the blood of our Savior. We're about to take communion. Communion, again, something that Jesus instituted on the front end of Holy Week. I mentioned earlier that Passover and Holy Week are deeply tied together. And if you don't understand how they're deeply tied together, let me, let me just briefly explain it to you. The Passover was, was when God delivered his people. As he talks about in Micah chapter 6, I delivered you out of Egypt. He delivers them out of oppression. He delivers them out of slavery. He saves them from the domain of sin that had held his people down by judging that sin to set them free. And he judges that sin... By, by pronouncing the death of the firstborn of everyone in Egypt. But he offers a way of mercy and escape to his people by saying, take a lamb, a spotless lamb. Sacrifice that lamb. Let that lamb be a, a death that covers you, that prevents death in your home. Take the blood of the lamb Put it over your doorpost, and when the angel of death comes to execute my judgment, he will see the blood covering your home and pass over you. My judgment will pass over you. It's, it's mercy. It's grace. And so Jesus, sitting with his disciples at the Last Supper table, he takes the bread and the cup and he reorients their thinking about what they were about to do. Instead of 
sacrificing the lamb again, he points to himself and he says, I am the lamb of God. This bread is my body broken for you. This cup represents my blood poured out for you. As the blood of the sacrificial lamb covers you, the judgment of God passes over you that mercy may be yours by faith in me. That's the whole picture of communion. And it's communal. God doesn't just save individuals. He saves a people and gathers them around a table in fellowship to eat a meal together with him. That's what we're about to do. But I want to I encourage you as we go to the table to examine your heart. God's not asking you to be sinless. That's Jesus' job. God's asking you to trust in him. God's asking us for humility. God's asking us for repentance. God's asking us to cry out that this, this sacrifice is the sacrifice we need. And then when we take and eat and drink together regularly as the people of God, we declare this is efficacious for us until he comes again. So examine your heart. If you're in Christ this morning, even if you're hanging on to faith by a thread, you have a Savior who's given all for you.